What's good, 7 p.m.? How are we doing tonight? Am I good? Good, good, good. Oh, man, I really am pumped uh, to jump into Romans 15 with you tonight. Um, I really do believe that the Spirit is stirring up something that's a unique word for the Summit Church in this kind of season that we find ourselves in, and so I really am eager to jump in. Um, so I'm looking at the clock. I have so much to say, and nowhere near the time to say it in, which is like always true, always. Um, but also, I woke up this morning and uh, had zero voice, and God's been really kind all day to carry me through. Uh, but man, my voice feels like it's just right on the edge. So if my voice goes out, I'm looking at one of you guys to just jump up and keep going, okay? Uh, or let the Spirit just kind of fill in what I didn't don't get to, okay? Uh, so we'll see what happens tonight. This could get crazy or whispery or whatever. I don't know. Um, but I love you guys a lot. I really am grateful to be part of this community and be sent out by you here in a few months. And if we haven't met, my name is Derek. Uh, my family and I moved here back in February, so we've been here almost a year now. And uh, if you're anything, I don't know, I'm looking around the room, and I know some of your stories, and just the stats, uh, if they're true, probably 90% of this room uh, is from somewhere else. You grew up somewhere else. So maybe you can sympathize with what I'm about to say, um, is that this, this incessant meeting new people in a new context like a city like this, uh, answering the same questions over and over and over and over and over again of uh, just like, hey, where are you from, and what brought you to Denver, and what do you do for work? Um, just really basic questions, and so I'm here to have a group therapy session to tell you that I'm so anxious about how to answer those questions, uh, particularly the one about what brought us to Denver and what I do for work. So I've been a pastor like for the last decade or so. That's been my occupation, uh, and that's just a really weird category for a lot of people. When you say you're a pastor and what happens on people's faces when you lead out in our relationship in that category. And so I'm just kind of working through a lot of insecurities and inferiorities about that. Um, but in particular in a context like Denver, our categories of what it means to be a pastor, to lead a church, is just all over the map. And I just know that that's the case. Uh, but uniquely in this season that we find ourselves in of planting a church, um, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but that's also a pretty weird concept. Because people ask, oh, so you're a pastor, so where is it? Where's the church? I'm like, well, we don't have a building. We kind of meet in a house. I'm like, so you're a cult. That's great. We're just going to bounce out from this. Um, And they'll start asking questions like, so what do you guys do? It's like, well, we're doing a lot of life together and loving our neighbors. uh, But really, right now, there's not a lot of the normal rhythms like this um, that define us as a community. And so here's the point why I'm telling you all this. Um, it really has caused me pause to ask some really honest questions about what it is that we're doing here in this space. Um, what is the church, really? What does it mean for me to be a pastor of a community of people? Um, what's happening under the surface here? And, and maybe even a deeper question that uh, I've really been wrestling with and I think is the point of this text tonight. Is not just what the church is or how it is that we live together as the church, but why? Like, why the church? I don't know if you kind of get yourself out of just the mundaneness of coming to things like this or city group or just life together, uh, whether you grew up around the church, whether this is a completely new thing for you. Um, I don't know that you've had the kind of intellectual honesty to ask the question of what's the point of all of this? And sometimes when we get kind of in the, in the grind of just the everydayness of it, um, it would be really good for us to pull our gaze up past the really important what's and the essential hows of all that we're doing and really ask some honest questions about uh, why. 
And I, I do believe that's what Paul is doing in this text because throughout the book of Romans, that's kind of what he's been doing. Explicitly and implicitly, he's answering the questions of what and how of the church. That the church, listen, is not our idea. And it's not just something that we just decided to do because we thought it could be a cool thing to do in urban Denver. Uh, that the church is the result, the fruit of the genius and the dream of God himself. That the church is the outflowing of the gospel that we've been unpacking all throughout the book of Romans. That God is good and he exists and he's given us our identity although we've rebelled against him and therefore our souls are disintegrated. They're not as they should be. And our relationships with one another are disintegrated and they're not as they should be. And because we live this disintegrated life, because of our rebellion against God, everything that we create as humans is is disintegrated. Not as it should be. It's broken. There's things like injustice exist and evil exists. Um, And we're trying so desperately to put band-aids on all the brokenness that we know exists around us. And the book of Romans is going to tell us that it's in that space that Jesus, God himself, enters in. Took on flesh, lived for us, died for us, rose again for us. And here's the point. To heal your soul. To put you back together. The word healing And salvation in the New Testament is the same word. That Jesus is wanting to heal you to the depth and the recesses of what makes you you. And if you're here tonight and you're exploring Christianity, that's what he's after. But but hear me, and this is what we've been talking about for the last couple months as we've pivoted in chapter 12, as Paul has been unpacking the implications of this good news. That Jesus did not just do all of those things to save you as an individual. But rather, he is forming an us, a people for himself. And we've been unpacking this unity that we now have together as we are to be one as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And we're caught up that church has a depth to it, even deeper than what so many of our categories have allowance for. And that this family operates best when it's diverse and that we have unity, not uniformity, but unity in the midst of all our, of our diversity so that we will grow up in every way into Jesus. That's the church. But here's what Paul is going to do for us tonight, is to lift our gaze and say, what if the purpose of the church is not less than all of those things that I just said, but what if there is a glorious cosmic reality, a why underneath all of these what's um, that is so much bigger than us? That what if there's something that's happening in this space, even right now, that is more than just your personal growth to be like Jesus? That there's something that's meant to do to produce something, um, to reduce a a bigger um, why. And and I think, before we jump in, I want us just to press into that question a little bit more. That this idea of why is really, really important. And it's down in the fabric of what it means to be human. Uh, if, If you're curious of whether or not that's true... Spend more than one minute with my three-year-old son, and you're going to hear the question, why, more than you thought was humanly possible. Um, everything from like, hey, bud, we're supposed to be kind to other people. And then after like eight questions of him asking me why, I find myself questioning everything I thought I knew about human morality. I mean, just like everything. All the way to the most recent one last night. You ready for this? Um, why does everyone poop was the why cycle spiral that we had last night. And I realized that I don't know a lot about our human digestive system, is what I learned last night. Um, after seven questions, I'm like, bro, I just, we just do, okay? We just do. Um, but when we get older, um, we still ask the question. And maybe you've gotten cynical in the question of why. 
and just almost assume that there isn't an answer to that question. And that just kind of defines your life. And you apply that to the church. Like, there probably isn't a why of why we do all this. This is kind of optional, all this church stuff. Or on the other end of the spectrum, maybe we get to the point where um, we just stopped asking existential questions a long time ago. And we just take things at surface value. Like, you really haven't thought for a long time of why the church matters. Uh, what it means to be the people of God. And so I think that when we get this why kind of nailed down, a lot of the hows we can endure. This is true of all of life. Like when every organization, every innovation, um, cause that we have, like when you understand the why, the preferred future of where all this is headed, the purpose of all of this, it helps us to endure the mundaneness of the hows. Like spreadsheets are terrible no matter how you cut it, right? They're just terrible. But when you understand like for your job, why the spreadsheets are a necessity. It helps you to keep going. Like, there's nothing sexy about parenting. Parenting's hard. It's a bunch of everyday, moment-by-moment little deaths, actually, is what parenting feels like. But when you see the, the bigger why of parenting, it helps you to endure the dirty diapers or the rebellious teenager or whatever uh, it is. And so I think we've got to wrestle with the question of why, and Paul allows us to do that tonight in this text. And so to kind of set up our conversation tonight, I want us to look at verse 7 in chapter 15 and where we are, because I think this is a summary statement, a theme verse, if you will, uh, of all that he's talking about in this chapter and really um, what he's been talking about over the last few chapters. And so let's read it uh, up here on the screen. It says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So I want us to look at three things out of this verse uh, but I'm looking at the other verses around it. Three things. First, I want us to see the obligation and the difficulty of this unity that we're talking about. And I want us to see uh, the means and the motivation for unity together as the church. Uh, and then finally, we'll end with the purpose and the plan uh, of unity. Sound good? Even if you say no, we still have to do this, okay? Um, <clears throat> all right, first, the obligation and the difficulty of unity. So he says in verse 7, um, to welcome one another. And I want us to, to pause and think about this phrase for a second before we just rush past it. Um, that This idea of welcoming one another, although it sounds so simple, is really, really profound. And it means so much more than just simply enduring one another. It means so much more than just putting up with all of our many differences like we've talked about over the last several weeks. And it literally has the idea of to inviting the other however you define the other, into your personal presence, into an intimate relationship. And some even senses of the word would even mean into your literal physical home. Some even connotations of this idea of welcome would mean to grab a hold of the other and force them into your presence. And that's not like Christian stalker life. That's just meaning like an intentionality around the posture that we ought to have as ones who are following the way of Jesus toward other people, is that part of what it means to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, uh, and, and I would even argue, I think the whole scriptures argue, is pretty crucial to what it means to follow Jesus, is this idea of an openness, a hospitality, if you will, an inviting in. And this is not something to add to your busy schedule, to add to a list of do's and don'ts, but rather to say, I'm going to see my entire life differently. This is what the invitation 
to us is from this text, is to have a posture of, am I welcoming one um, another? It's a space that the gospel provides to say, listen, together, we create a safe environment for one another to be who they are, and all of our messes and inadequacies and idiosyncrasies and differences, but then to say, but we're not going to stay there. That we are being and we are becoming who Jesus has intended us to be. And we're creating space for that to be cultivated, for that to flourish. That is the idea of Christian hospitality, the idea of Christian community and unity um, together. And this is not new. This kind of sounds cool, like let's share tables together. But Christianity began around a table, around a shared meal. That really is the image and the icon of our faith. It spread because of this radical, ordinary hospitality, this way of life that counted others as more significant as we count ourselves. That is what caused Christianity to be so intoxicating and vibrant and real and and valid in the first century in the midst of great persecution. Um, It's a posture of life. So what does this look like tangibly in flesh and blood? So let's jump back to verse 1 and 2 that Paul's unpacking here and look at this image of unity, of this hospitality, this posture of openness toward the other. When he says in verse 1, let's read it together. It says, we who are strong, continuing the conversation we've had about strong, weak faith in chapter 14, have an obligation, notice that word, an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, to build her up. So two quick things about uh, these two verses. First, uh, unity requires us to take ourselves out of the center. See what it says? To to not please ourselves, but instead to have an other orientation about our life. And he even puts some pretty strong language that we can't wiggle ourselves out because of our stage of life or because of our issues that we got going on. He says that you have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And I know in, in first century or 21st century urban Denver, the idea of being obligated to anything just drives us crazy, right? Like you can't tell me to do nothing, right? Like I'm my own free spirit. And it's like, no, no, no. There's something about that we're tethered to, that we're obligated to um, the other. Hyper-individualism would say, I connect every situation to myself. Every relationship, I'm filtering it, listen, not through the lens of the kingdom of God, but rather through the lens of self. How does this other person affect me? How does it benefit me? And when you have yourself in the center and you're seeking to please yourself and not to seek your neighbor's good for their flourishing, what happens is you begin to see people in one of two categories. Either A, they are a means to get what I want. Or I see the other as an obstacle in the way of what I want. But where ourselves are in the center and every, every situation, every conversation orbits around me. And Paul's saying, not so in the kingdom of God. This is not the way of uh, our Jesus and that we have to um, remove ourselves from this. So it's the freedom of self-forgetfulness to say, what if the purpose of the church, yes, is about your own growth, that we need diversity so that we can more fully image and mirror Jesus. But what if it's really not about us at all at the end of the day? 
to have an other-centeredness, to say, I'm going to absorb your weakness, not cause your weaknesses or your sin or your failures to be a reason to demonize you or dehumanize you or to ostracize you or isolate myself from you, but I'm actually going to bear with your failings, to absorb them in myself, is what the text is saying. That's a different way to see life. Here's the second part, uh, second reality about these two verses, is that unity then requires us to take responsibility for the flourishing of others. That he ups the ante. It even says that this is definitely true. It has to begin within the people of God, the household of faith. But then he says in verse uh, 3 that let each of us please his neighbor for his good. So who's our neighbor? And Jesus answered that on repeat when he was here in his teachings, that the neighbor is not just people that are like us, not just people that are convenient to love, But every human being who bears the image and the mark of the divine, even our enemies. So think about everybody, your actual literal literal neighbors that are beside of you, the people that you're going to drive past when we leave this space, the people that you work alongside of, the people to your right and to your left, front and behind you, the people around the world, is what would it look like to have a vision for their good? When's the last time that we really stepped back and said, why do we exist? What if it's so much more gloriously true than it's just about us? And what would it mean for the people of God to ask by the Spirit of God to cultivate a missional imagination of what would it look like to see my neighbors, i.e. all people, to flourish? What is their good? And, and it implies that there's an absence to that. And so Paul's going to say, to, and then once you get that vision, to step in and to actively see them built up to this image of flourishing. And before this feels like a, a yoke of a burden or oppression of something that's like, man, I can barely take care of my own junk, much less absorb other people's brokenness. I want, before this feels like a, just a, a suffocating kind of reality, I want to just reframe this that God is not asking you to start anything in the hearts and lives of the people around you. Like there's no cape flapping in the wind, us rushing in to save all of the people around us. Like that is not the tone or the definition of what we mean here. It's rather to say, I understand that my God is at work all around me. The Spirit of God is moving in the people that we just so casually walk by day in and day out. And if we really believe that God is redeeming people by his grace, he's calling people to himself, that he wants to change them, to fully form them, to be like Jesus, he wants to invite them to live in this diverse family of God and then to see their calling and their purpose in life to be restored and to work for restoration, to see, listen, the kingdom of Jesus break in. Like you have an imagination of what your block would look like if the kingdom of God were to break in. What would it look like to take responsibility that my workplace is not just a place for me to pay the bills and make a paycheck, but rather for the kingdom of God to embrace in Denver? To have a vision of good for my neighbor and then actively pursue it. Um, so before we move on, it would not be a sermon at the Summit Church if I did not quote Tim Keller. So turn your attention to the screen and look at this uh, Keller quote uh, here. This is really, really good. It's probably like my favorite Tim Keller quote ever. So It says, gospel-saturated relationships is to look at another person. I want you to think about actual people, your actual neighbors, your actual community, 
and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Isn't that beautiful? Get before the Lord and ask by his spirit to give you that kind of vision for the people in your life. And just see what God uh, might do in us. But here's the second reality is the motivation and the means for unity. Here's, here's what we all know. This stuff ain't no joke. It's hard. Just this week, I was leaving to go prepare this sermon, and I had one of the most intense, awkward, difficult interactions with my actual neighbor. Like, it got really hairy really quick. Um, well, I was going to go into it, but I won't hash that out again with you, okay? This is between me and homeboy over at the house, but we'll find that out later. And, and, and I sit down, and I open up Romans 15, and I'm like, oh, man, all right, Holy Spirit, I see what you're up to. I get it. Uh, I, I stink at this. We love the idea of being good neighbors until you actually try to do it. We love the idea of community more than we actually love community itself. And what would it look like to actually embody this, flesh and blood, this kind of thing? But listen, this is hard. This is difficult. And I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but I just want us to see that he turns our attention to Jesus in verse 3. And he says, For Christ did not please himself, but instead the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He turned our attention to Jesus, the heart of God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus, who had every right to push us aside, who did not have to love us, that we are the crazy neighbors. Can I get a witness? It's us. And Jesus is the one who didn't please himself, but said, I'm going to please you. I'm not going to seek my own good. I'm going to seek your good. I have a vision of flourishing for you, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to bleed and die, and I'm going to rise again to purchase this for you. That's our Jesus. That's what he's done. And that's the only, listen, the only, only motivation that will endure is to see that just as we welcome one another, just as, verse 7, Christ has welcomed you. It's the essence and the heart of the gospel. But here's what I believe. I really don't think we believe that. That in the midst of all that Christianity is, do you realize what the, the essence of it is? Is that Jesus welcomes you. You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer an outcast. He invites you to sit at his table, to be in his presence, to feast on his love and to be ravished in his mercy and his grace. Get this, around brothers and sisters who are just like you. And in some ways, nothing like you. But we're united around Jesus. It's Christianity. When's the last time you have been welcomed by your God to feel his love for you? This is not about do more, try harder. The only thing that's going to get you up to actually live this out, or at least try and fail, is to see Jesus. He loves you, and he's welcoming you in. But then he says in verse 4, he goes, yeah, let me talk to you about the Bible. And I'm like, where did that come from, Paul? Um, because he just quoted in verse 3 a Bible passage is why he's going on a tangent about the scriptures. But look what he says in verse 4 about the scriptures. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So when you see Jesus, when you've been with Jesus, 
we begin to take him at his word and believe that this is not just a bunch of facts about our faith, but it's actually a means for us by which we encounter the living God. And we begin to, to trust him. That do you need endurance? Like to actually keep going in the mess of all of this, of how hard it is to follow Jesus? The only way that we're able to endure when life gets hard is through trusting that when Jesus commands us to live a certain way and to reorient our lives around his purposes, it's for our good. It's for our flourishing. I just feel so weighty in this. Um, there is no version of Christianity that will not cost you something. To follow Jesus is always going to lead to a cross. Always. Um, and I think so often we just don't have a category for that. So when it gets hard and we get punched in the teeth, <laughs> when we try to obey and it doesn't happen as quickly as we want it to happen, or our, all of our idols get crushed in the weight of all of this just difficulty of this mission. So we just want to bounce and dip and give up and go live for ourselves. And then we wonder why we're so miserable. It was never meant to be about us at all. And what I think he's calling us to do is you have to have a trust and a confidence that this really is the life that is truly life. To endure. And we know this is true. No one ever got ripped from doing one workout. You checking with me? You got to keep going. Keep pursuing. And on the other side, listen, on the other side of all the tiny thousand little deaths every day of trying to follow Jesus, on the other side of that death is resurrection. And it's the good stuff of the resurrection, that everything that we're hoping for is on the other side of this dying to self, to come alive to all that Jesus is. That's why he says you don't have to just endure, but you can be encouraged to actually, listen church, to be infused with courage, to be bold, to risk for the kingdom to come, to, to see it embodied, say, I'm going to even fail trying because I have the promises of God. That the way of Jesus is upside down, that the way up is down. If you want to find your life, Jesus says, you need to lose it. That the big things of the kingdom come from little tiny small seeds that are buried under the ground and after a while they spring up. That maturity actually looks more like a little kid than having your crap together. That's the upside downness of the kingdom. And that ought to infuse us with courage to keep going. And then he says, the result is that you might have hope. That one day, all the striving will be over. He's coming to fix it. It's going to be set right. And it's not like I hope that this happens. Like, no, no, no. It will happen. You will see Jesus and be with him. And I want to live today in light of that day when we see our Jesus. Amen? Church, are we tracking together here? There's hope in that. But here's the, the, the last point. It's like, well, hope in what to endure? Like, what's the glorious why underneath all the other whys? Here's the last thing. It's the purpose and plan of unity. The verse 8 says, the reason Jesus came was so that all Gentiles read the nation's the peoples of the world, might glorify God for his mercy. The reason Jesus came. And there's a theme throughout this whole passage about this theme of glory. Verse 6 says that together with one voice in harmony, we will glorify our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that our life together, the unity, the why of all of this is that God might get his praise among every people group of this world. That is the purpose of human history. That's why you exist, is for God to be seen as beautiful. And as he's seen as beautiful, to be enjoyed as such, as the most beautiful being in all of the universe. Like This idea of glory is beauty made visible. And have, when's the last time that you really, really believe that God is glorious, beautiful? The why? What's the why of all of this? Is that Jesus is good and he deserves our praise. And not just our praise, but the praise of every people of this world. He is uniquely and most vividly seen to be as good as he is when not just a bunch of people in Denver gather together that's diverse, as glorious as the Summit Church is, but the Summit Church is a one little small thread of a larger tapestry of human history and around the world of a praise of one voice glorifying God the Father of every people of this world. Like see Revelations 5 with every tribe, tongue, language, and culture gathered around the throne doing what? saying, worthy, worthy are you who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. Like, that's where all this is headed. And the greatest thing that we could do, the why of your life, the why of our life together, is to see our God enjoyed for the beauty that he actually is and to see that happen among the nations. That's the point. What would it look like if we took that seriously? And that changes tomorrow morning when you get up. That changes when you go to city group. That changes the way we view what happens in this space. It's a seed God enjoyed by all the peoples of the world. So let's pray to this end as the team comes up to, to lead us. Uh, here's what I want to do. Is Paul, uh, throughout these 13 verses, I skipped um, two different phrases on purpose because it's as if Paul is praying something um, in light of all these realities. And so if you'll just enter into a posture of prayer with me, close your eyes. There's nothing magical about this moment, but here's what I want to do is I want us to, to see verses 9 through 12 where he says, I just want to read this over us. It says, therefore, I will praise you among the nations and sing to your name, like who you are. Again, it is said, rejoice, O nations, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you nations, and let all the peoples extol him. So God, we want that to be the why of our lives. And not just our lives individually, but our lives corporately as the Summit Church and soon as the Oaks Church and every other church in this city that bears your name and is on mission with you to the nations. Lord, that all the peoples might praise your name that we would endure to that end, that we'd be encouraged to that end, that we would see the end to which all of this is headed and that it might cause us to live and welcome one another, to truly be open and hospitable. What would it look like if this week, all throughout this city, our tables were filled with people who are unlikely to be at our tables because we're motivated by how you've welcomed us? God, would you do that work in us? Cultivate this in us, God. So God, I pray as you tell us to pray in your word, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant the Summit Church to live in this harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, we, together, brothers and sisters, may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, would you do that? We need to endure. We need 
your encouragement. So we thank you that you're the God of those things. We don't have to manufacture it in ourselves. Would there be a vision of you that would so compel a unity in this church that would spread itself out to every street in this city and to every people group of this world? God, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. God, for the empty in this room, would you fill us up by your Spirit? Spirit, blow, stir. Give us hope to believe again. Give us joy in our believing. Give us peace in the midst of our believing so that we would abound in more and more hope. God, would you do that work in us tonight? In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.